This episode is brought to you by Horror Quickies. If you like horror anthology books, this is for you. Over 80 tales of terror told in a true story style that will curdle your blood and send shivers down your spine. Horror Quickies, the complete series, is only $2.99 on Amazon or free if you have Kindle Unlimited. Go to Amazon.com and search for Horror Quickies or just go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) I am your host, just your friendly neighborhood Maniac on the Loose. Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. The DVD. I work a white collar nine to five job. I have a wife and two kids and I live in the suburbs. I have what most people might describe as a normal life. The day in question was just another ordinary day for me. I drove to work, or should I say I crawled to work. The traffic I fight during rush hour makes what should be a 20 minute drive a 60 minute drive. I got to the office and waved to the receptionist. I sat down at my desk, did a series of menial tasks that would take about four hours if I really put my axe to the grinder, but I managed to stretch it all out to encompass the eight hour workday. Then I fought the same traffic on the way back home. I stopped at the mailbox and got the mail before pulling into the driveway. Normally I'd go inside, kiss my wife and kids, and have dinner. We'd chit-chat about our days as we ate, then we'd all go our separate ways and unwind. But on this day I was met at the porch by my wife and 11-year-old son. My wife informed me that she was taking my son to hockey practice. I asked her if she wanted me to come with her, but she said she would do it and that she had dinner waiting for me in the oven. I went into the house and called out for my 16-year-old daughter, Mary, but there was no response. Then I remembered that it was Wednesday. On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, Mary stays quite late after school for band practice. That meant I had the entire house all to myself. A rare occurrence indeed. I was delighted when I opened the oven to find my wife's famous spaghetti casserole. I fixed myself a seat at the kitchen table after turning on some relaxing classical music to set the mood. I love my family, but it's nice to be all alone once in a while. As I neared the end of my meal, I started thumbing through the mail, and my interest was piqued by a square, padded, manila envelope. I turned it over to see who it was from and was surprised. Not only was there no return address, 
there was no address at all. It was just a blank, sealed, square manila envelope. Someone had to have physically placed this in my mailbox as opposed to sending it. But who? And more importantly, what was in it? I opened the envelope to find a single DVD. No drop slip, no letter accompanying it. Just a single silver DVD that had no writing on it to indicate what was on it. I poured myself a snifter of brandy, put the DVD in the player, settled into my favorite recliner, and pressed play on the remote controller. A shaky image overtook the TV screen. The footage appeared to have been taken with a cheap home video camera. The image was from a balcony and was zooming in and out on a city skyline that was far off in the distance. Then I heard whimpering and crying coming from off-camera. It was that of a woman. I couldn't make out everything she was saying, but it was clear that she was pleading for her life. The audio started out from a distance and then quickly became louder as the woman got closer to the camera. I could hear her scream the words, No! Please! No! And then the camera spun around enough to show the woman. She couldn't have been more than 20 years old. The camera was zoomed in close on her. I couldn't see the faces of the people behind her, but I could see their hands. There were multiple sets of hands pushing and shoving her until she tumbled over the balcony rail. The camera followed her as she screamed and fell to the parking lot below. Her screaming stopped and was replaced with a loud thud as she splattered on the hood of a car. The camera then cut to static. What the hell was this? Before I could think further, the static was replaced by a blonde woman in a chair. The camera was zoomed in on her tear-stained face as she was screaming in terror. From the left side of the screen, a hand holding a gun entered the frame. The gun was placed against the woman's temple, and the trigger was pulled. I could see a spray of blood come out the other side of her head, and then she toppled over out of frame. And then static. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then another horrifying image came across the screen. A naked teenage boy was chained to a cement wall. He was already battered and bruised and seemed to be in a daze. A man wearing green coveralls and a black gas mask entered the frame. He was holding a baseball bat and proceeded to bash the boy in the face over and over until his face was an unrecognizable mess. Static again. I started looking around for the remote controller. I didn't want to see any more, but before I could find it, Another image appeared. This was a naked woman tied to a wooden post. She was gagged, so I couldn't understand a word she was saying, but the gag couldn't muffle her screams. Next to her stood a man in a trench coat. He was donning a latex skeleton mask. He began savagely stabbing the woman in the abdomen over and over until her intestines began to spill out onto the floor. Finally, I got a hold of the controller and turned the nauseating display off. It took me several minutes to catch my breath and compose myself. 
Who put this in my mailbox? I rushed outside to the mailbox. Maybe there was something I missed that would give me a clue as to who sent this. When I opened my mailbox, I saw it. A single adhesive address label. Apparently, it had fallen off the envelope when it was put in my mailbox. I grabbed the address label and looked at it. It was addressed to 216 Meadowbrook Drive. My address is 214 Meadowbrook Drive. This was meant for my neighbor. His mailbox is right next to mine. The mailman clearly put it in my mailbox by mistake. A plan quickly entered my mind. I was going to put the DVD back in the envelope, seal it, reapply the address label, put it in his mailbox, and pretend I never saw the damn thing at all. As I turned to head back to my house, I saw my neighbor at 216 Meadowbrook Drive standing in his yard. He was staring at me. He was in his mid-fifties, probably ten years older than me. He had graying, wavy hair. He was of average height, fit and trim. I didn't know him. We had exchanged hellos during mailbox encounters a few times and waved at each other on the occasions when we both happened to be mowing our lawns at the same time, but that was about the extent of it. I smiled nervously and waved. He didn't smile or wave back. He just kept his eyes fixed on me as I walked through my yard and got back into my house. I hadn't been in the house for more than 60 seconds before there was a knock at the door. It was my neighbor. I opened the door and he spoke immediately. Did you see it? I wasn't sure what to say, but I guess my expression betrayed me because he started to nod. Yeah, you saw it. I started to open my mouth to say something, but again he beat me to it. It's all fake. I have a friend of mine from Hollywood who is a special effects artist. He likes to send me DVDs of some of his latest work. Finally, I muttered out some words. That, that was fake? He smiled and nodded. Impressive, huh? My friend is very talented. I can't imagine what you must have thought. I let out a nervous laugh and he held out his hand. May I have it? For a second, it didn't register as to what he was talking about. The DVD. Oh, yes, of course. I took the DVD out of the machine and gave it to him. He thanked me and was on his way. But before he walked through the door, he looked back at me and spoke in a serious tone. Don't ever tell anyone about this. And then he left. I was just glad it was all over, and I felt a genuine sense of relief when he explained to me that the horrific sights I had seen were all fake. I like to believe that he was telling me the truth, but if I'm being honest, there was something about the mischievous glint in his eye when he told me never to tell anyone. That makes me wonder...
hunting season. I'm the kind of guy that lives for hunting season. I was hunting in far northern Michigan. This is the type of region that separates the men from the boys with dense forests as far as the eye can see. Once you're out there, you're on your own. I got caught up in a heavy snowstorm. The flakes were so fat it was seriously obstructing my vision. I noticed a small cave ahead and decided to take refuge there until the storm settled down. It wasn't a huge cave that I could fit in, but there was an overhang above me so I could sit there for a little bit and stay dry. I had been there for about 15 or 20 minutes when I started hearing movement. It was coming from the cliff's overhang about 20 feet above me. It was a deep rustling sound that was growing more intense by the second. As I looked up, I realized what was happening. The thick snow on the cliff's edge was giving way to gravity, and I found myself staring at a massive blanket of snow collapsing on top of me. I didn't have time to move, and the mini avalanche thudded atop me, knocking me to the ground and covering me up. Normally, this wouldn't have been that big of a deal, but along with the blanket of thick, heavy snow was a boulder of ice. It landed on my head and knocked me unconscious. I don't know how long I had been laying there before I woke up. I pulled myself up from underneath the canopy of snow and stood up. My head hurt a bit, but otherwise I was fine. At least, I initially thought I was. As I stared ahead, I quickly realized that I couldn't remember anything. I knew I was out there hunting, but I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where my shelter was. My mind was a total blank. I had some kind of amnesia. This was a serious situation because people go missing in these woods every year. I started to panic. I, 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 I didn't know what to do, so I, I started walking. I must have walked for 10 miles before I stepped out of the forest and onto a trail. I started following it, hoping it would lead me somewhere. I had to find something soon because night was beginning to fall, and I was getting bitterly cold. A sense of relief showered over me when I spotted tire tracks up ahead on the trail. They, they were four-wheeler tracks. I, I knew they had to lead somewhere, so I started to follow them. It was about 30 minutes later when I spotted the cabin. By this time, my feet and hands had gone numb. I needed to warm up fast. As quickly as I could, I stumbled toward the cabin. The cabin was of modest size, bigger than most hunter shacks one might come across. I finally reached the front door and started knocking. There was no answer, so I turned the knob and opened the door. The interior of the cabin was very welcoming. My eyes focused on the stone fireplace with a roaring fire and bearskin rug in front of it. I pulled off my wet clothes, wrapped myself in the bearskin, and warmed myself by the flames. It wasn't long before I sufficiently warmed up, but I still couldn't remember anything. I was hoping whoever's cabin this was would be back soon and they could help me. I knew they couldn't be far because the fire was thriving. If they had been gone for any length of time, there would have been nothing but embers. I started looking about the cabin. It was quite nice. A lot of hunting cabins are just shacks that are thrown together. This was several steps up from that type. 
I got up and started looking around. The walls were decorated with antlers and a few landscape paintings. There was a kitchen table in the back of the room with rustic cedar chairs. There was a large shelf against the back wall with a bunch of antique coffee cans sitting on them. I figured these were far too old to actually contain coffee, so assumed they were being used to store things. I was curious as to what was in them, so I decided to nose around a bit. Maybe something would jog my memory. I opened the first can and it was full of nails. The next one had screws. One had several boxes of ammo. Another had packages of hand warmers. I sure could have used some of those earlier. Then things started getting more interesting. The next container I opened was full of men's rings. Some gold, some silver. They all looked like wedding bands. There must have been two dozen of them. The next container housed several pairs of eyeglasses. The next one had wristwatches. Some cheap, some pretty nice. I opened the next coffee can. On the top I noticed a driver's license. It was a Michigan license. The man's name was Sean Nichols. Unfortunately, neither the name nor the picture jogged my memory. Then I noticed underneath that driver's license there was another driver's license. And then another. And another. The can was full of different men's driver's licenses. They were mostly from Michigan, but there were also some from Wisconsin, Minnesota, and a few other states. This was unusual, and I was starting to get a bad feeling about this cabin and whoever it belonged to. But I was in a bind. I, I, I didn't know where I was and couldn't remember anything. I was going to need this person's help, so I resealed the coffee cans and decided just to sit by the fire and wait for the cabin's owner. As I sat by the fire and gazed about the cabin, I noticed a door in a dark corner of the room. It was partially opened and I thought maybe that was a bedroom. The cabin's owner might be in there taking a nap, so I got up and walked to the door. I knocked on the door gently and called out, but nobody answered, so I opened it. It wasn't a bedroom. It was a small room with an industrial-sized stainless steel sink against the wall. The sink was huge, about the size of a bathtub. I saw the variety of cutting tools sitting on the edge of the sink. Various knives, a hacksaw, a chainsaw, among other things. I could also see something large lying inside the sink, but couldn't make out what it was. I walked forward to get a better look and froze as the blood drained from my face. Lying in the sink was the naked, dead body of a man. His arms had been cut off and had been placed on top of him. The owner of the cabin was a murderer. I needed to get the hell out of there before I wound up in that sink too. As I took a step to get out of the room, I heard the cabin door open. The owner was back, or should I say, the killer was back. I inched toward the door and peeked out into the cabin. The guy was pretty big. He was decked out in camouflage and was dragging another body into the cabin. This man was a complete murderous psycho, and if he found me, I'd be next. Possible options started flooding my mind. 
I could try to sneak out of the cabin without him seeing me. I know he has a four-wheeler because I follow the tracks. He probably has a truck of some sort, too. Maybe I could get the jump on him and take his keys and get out of there. I mean, I did have a gun. My gun. It was lying out there by the fireplace next to my clothes. If this guy spotted them, the jig would be up and I'd be his next victim. I continued peeping out the door watching the crazy killer. The body he was dragging into the cabin was decked out in camouflage and an orange vest. Obviously, it was a hunter. The killer dragged the body deeper into the cabin, closer to my clothes. I could see my clothes by the fireplace. They were bunched up in a pile about a yard away from the dead body. If the killer just turned his head slightly, he'd spot them. But he didn't. Instead, he turned and headed back outside for something. This was my chance. I darted out into the cabin and grabbed my pile of clothes. But my rifle wasn't next to them like I thought. I rapidly gazed around the room and spotted it standing next to the front door. I must have set it there without thinking when I came in since my mind was so focused on the fire and getting warm. I rushed toward my gun, but before I could reach it, the cabin door started opening again. I darted toward the back of the cabin and took refuge under the kitchen table. The big murderer came back in and started dragging the dead hunter toward the room with the sink. Once he got into the room, I could grab my gun and decide whether to just run for it or to confront the killer. But first, he had to get the dead man into that room. As he dragged the dead body toward the room, I heard a loud clang of something hitting the wood floor and could see a large pocket knife lying on the floor. Apparently, it had fallen from the killer's pocket as he was stooped over pulling the body. I crossed my fingers that he would just ignore it and keep pulling the body into the room. If he stopped to pick it up, he'd see me and I'd be done for. My worst fears were realized. He dropped the arms of the dead man, bent down, reached for the knife, and we locked eyes. Time stood still for me. I wasn't sure what to do. I probably had a moment to make some kind of move as it dawned on him what he was seeing, but I froze. What the hell are you doing under there? His voice was deep and gruff. I stood up as I tried to think of something to say. He seemed perplexed by my lack of attire. Why are you standing there naked? My voice came out in a mutter. Uh, my, my clothes were wet. I, I was cold. He nodded at me and then asked me a question. Did you finish cutting up that body? I didn't understand. Wh what? The body. Did you finish cutting it up? You know how in movies when someone has amnesia and they're told that they'll get their memory back all at once? That's exactly what happened to me. I was almost bowled over by the rush of memories slamming back into my brain. I actually had to place my hand on the kitchen table to steady myself. This guy wasn't going to kill me. He was my brother. This was our cabin. We were out here hunting together like we do every year. Most people in these parts hunt deer. That's not challenging enough for us. We're next level hunters. We need more of an adventure. And let me tell you, there's nothing like the thrill of hunting people, 
especially when they're armed. Hunters fit that bill perfectly. So for us, hunting season has a different meaning than it does for most. The Willow Grove Ghost The Willow Grove National Forest, located in Georgia, has a legend attached to it. The Legend of the Willow Grove Ghost Legend has it that the Willow Grove Ghost takes on the form of a frail, friendly woman. She attempts to lure men deep into the forest. Once successful, she transforms into a cat-like beast and ravages them. Over the years, many men have reported encountering a short, thin, pale woman wearing a knit cap and a winter jacket in the Willow Grove National Forest. Most accounts concur that she gives off a very innocent and friendly nature. Some have said she urges them to go deeper into the woods with her. Those who opted not to follow her describe an extreme change in her demeanor. They say she turns angry and screams at them in a tone described as demonic. Those who followed her have gone missing. The most conclusive evidence of the Willow Grove ghost's existence is the case of Ray Pollard. On November 15, 2014, a 39-year-old man named Ray Pollard went hiking in the Willow Grove National Forest with his dog, a white labradoodle named Jasmine. He was never seen or heard from again. The following are eyewitness accounts from people who encountered Ray Pollard in some capacity on November 15th, 2014. The Wristwatch My name is Greg. I'm 42. I guess I was the last person to see Ray Pollard that day. I just happened to pull up next to his vehicle in the parking lot as he was putting his backpack on. His dog came by my door as I was getting out. She was a pretty pooch and very friendly. I got to petting her and chit-chatted with Ray for a couple of minutes. He said he was headed for the Burrow Trail. The Burrow Trail is one of many hiking trails in Willow Grove National Park. There's a mile marker and bench every mile for the first 10 miles. After that, it thins out and becomes a rougher trek. Some people claim that nobody has ever reached the end of the Burrow Trail. I don't know if that's true or not. I told him that was the same trail I was going down, but I was going to have some lunch first. And that was it. He and his dog Jasmine walked off towards the trail. Later, when I was hiking down the Burrow Trail, I had gotten pretty far when I noticed the sun reflecting off of something metallic on a tree not too far off the trail. 
A lot of people camp in these woods. Initially, I figured someone hung their watch on the tree when they were changing clothes and just forgot about it. It was a nice watch. The glass on it was shattered, but it was still working. I had no way of finding out who the owner was, so I was going to keep it. When I heard that Ray had gone missing, I remember that he was wearing a wristwatch when I spoke to him. On the off chance that it was his, I brought it back. Sure enough, it turned out to be his. Which got me to wondering how the glass on it got broken. The Dog My name is Shirley, I'm 21. I was at the Willow Grove National Forest on that day. I was heading for the Bunny Trail. That's the trail that those of us who just want to do a quick mile walk through the woods always use. Just before I reached the trail entrance, I heard something rustling through the leaves on the other side of some cedar trees that lined the forest. I've never seen a bear or mountain lion when I've been in Willow Grove National Forest, but there are signs all over the place that warn that they inhabit this forest. So that's where my mind went and I was relieved when it was just a dog that emerged from the forest. It was a beautiful white labradoodle. People bring their dogs with them out here all the time, so I wouldn't have thought much of it, except this dog was covered in blood. I was afraid that some wild animal attacked it and it was injured, so I bent down and called the dog over. The dog was super friendly and didn't appear to be frightened or under any kind of trauma, as I would have expected it to be had it been attacked. I inspected the dog for wounds, but found none. Was this dog covered in someone's blood? The dog had a collar and tag, so I looked at them. The dog was named Jasmine and belonged to Ray Pollard. There was a phone number on the tag. Cell reception in the Willow Grove Forest is shoddy at best, but I had a signal and attempted to call. There was no answer. I brought Jasmine to the ranger station on the premises. They checked her over as well and confirmed that she was injury-free. The question was, whose blood was she covered with? The Shirt I'm John Saunders, I'm 29 years old from Georgia. I was hiking on the Spring Creek Trail, which is several miles from the Borough Trail, which Ray Pollard was supposed to have been hiking on. Halfway down the trail, you reach a long, narrow, covered bridge that goes over the Spring Creek. It's a, it's a beautiful sight. I was on a date with a girl from work. It was our second date. We, we did the coffee thing for our first date. I love the outdoors, so whenever I reach a second date with someone, I always suggest a hike. By the end of the hike, I usually know whether there will be a third date or not. Anyhow, this date was going particularly well. Uh, we made it to the bridge and stopped in the middle of it to watch the creek shimmy through the rough rocks. I had my arm around her and thought this would be a good moment for our first kiss. Unfortunately, my move was interrupted when she pointed out that someone had left their shirt hanging on a nail at the end of the bridge. It was a blue flannel shirt. It was just neatly hanging on one of the nail heads in the bridge that had worked its way out of the wood enough for something to be able to snag on it, but it was clear someone had hung it there intentionally. I, I wouldn't have thought anything of it, but I noticed it was dripping as, as if it were wet, but the puddle underneath it, it, it looked like rusty water. 
We found this curious, so we stepped closer to check it out and quickly realized that this shirt was completely drenched in blood. Then we heard something off in the woods just beyond the bridge. It was the sound of somebody whispering. They were far enough away where, where we couldn't make out what they were saying, but close enough for us to hear the whisper. The whisper had a deep raspiness to it. It didn't even sound human. I was trying my best to be brave. I, I didn't want to come across as some kind of scaredy cat, but in reality, I was frightened as hell. When my date suggested we get out of there, I agreed, and we did so. The Boot I was camping in the Willow Grove Forest with a buddy of mine during the time that Ray Pollard went missing. It was getting late one evening when I spotted a boot hanging from a limb of a tree. The strange thing was it was at the top of a tree, like 40 feet up there. I felt like it was too high for someone to have tossed it up there, so I was a bit curious and wanted to check it out. I can climb a tree as good as a black bear, so I made my way up there to get it down. It wasn't easy to get to, but when I did, the unusual thing was that someone had tied the laces tightly to the tree limb, and they tied it with a bow. So somebody climbed this tree, brought the boot up there with them, and tied it to the limb. Kinda crazy if you ask me, and that's coming from some guy who was crazy enough to climb the tree to get it down. When I got back down to the ground, my friend pointed out that the front portion of the boot was shredded, like something had chewed it up. I thought it was weird enough that we brought the boot to the ranger's office. Turns out, it belonged to Ray Pollard. And here's the thing. My campsite was nowhere near the burrow trail, which is the trail he supposedly went down. And I don't mean it was just a few miles away. I mean my campsite was on the other side of the park. It would have taken someone several days to get to where I was from the burrow trail. I don't know how one of his boots got out that far, or why someone would go to the lengths they did to tie it up in a tree so high. Weird. The Cell Phone I'm one of the many searchers who helped scour the area when Ray Pollard was officially considered missing. We had been searching for some time without much luck. We were quite deep into the Willow Grove National Forest when I finally discovered something. There was something unnatural about a small patch of dirt next to the base of an enormous tree. It looked as though it had been stirred up, like perhaps an animal had been digging there. Likely nothing, but I took a closer look. As I approached the spot and shined my flashlight on it, I could see that somebody had taken a stick and written a message in the dirt. The message read, It is trying to kill me. Next to the message, half covered with dirt, I discovered a cell phone. I picked it up and inspected it. The front screen was severely cracked, but surprisingly it still had power and was functioning. A quick scan through the phone's text messages revealed that it belonged to Ray Pollard. There were several pictures that had been taken November 15th, 2014, the day of his disappearance. The first was a selfie of Ray on the trail. He had a smile on his face and appeared content. 
The remainder of the photos were mostly that of the surrounding landscape and of his dog, Jasmine. None of the pictures revealed any clues as to what happened to him that day. However, there were three short videos that were recorded on the same day. They proved much more intriguing. The first video was of Ray Pollard kneeling by a tree petting his dog. He seemed to be relaxed. The video was slightly shaky, indicating that someone else was recording it. At the end of the video, the thin, feminine hand of whoever was recording the video entered the foreground of the frame and waved at Ray. Then the video shuts off. The next video was extremely jumpy, as if Ray Pollard were recording while he was running. He was shouting at the same time. The majority of the audio was unintelligible. The last sentence he screams before the recording shuts off can be partially deciphered. The final video taken from the cell phone of Ray Pollard on November 15, 2014, is the most disturbing. The video is bouncing around and is mostly blurry. The audio reveals anguished cries of terror from Ray Pollard, accompanied by growls and a deep, blood-curdling roar, indicating that Ray is being attacked by some kind of creature. The video then goes black. Days later, as investigators combed more closely through the footage, they discovered that the final frame of the video revealed a large, yellow eye with an elliptical, cat-like pupil. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Be sure to visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for the free newsletter and receive a free book and movie. We'll see you soon. Very soon.